Okay, good morning everyone again, and uh, it's a wonderful lesson to, uh, to see you. We are moving rapidly through this last part of the book of Romans. How much time we spend in Romans 15 is going to be anyone's guess. We've got, uh, we've got three verses we're going to be looking at today that come together really, really well. Fourth verse we're going to be singling out as, a, as an item on itself. I mean, because, uh, in a sense, this church is, has its foundational verse in that fourth verse. But um, we'll, uh, we'll look only at these first three for today. The title of the sermon this morning is called, For Christ Please Not Himself. For Christ Please Not Himself. Paul writes there in uh, verse 1, We then, that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let every one of us please his neighbour for his good edification. So even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the wonderful work that you are doing within our lives. And I only ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would be with each one of us this morning, that the word of God would impact the hearts and that perhaps, dear Father, someone might be saved. Someone might see the wonderful work that Christ has done. The one who has pleased not himself but reached out and heard the voice, the cry of you who are not known of Christ as yet. Not to be forgotten. I pray, dear Lord, that you will bless us, that you will bless this message, and that your name will be lifted up and you will be glorified. Amen. Bear ye one another's burdens. It's, a, um, it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting consideration that we need to consider for ourselves. Paul here gives this consideration and we notice something really interesting is that the focus that he wants us to focus on is that which is completely opposite to what we usually focus on. We usually like to please ourselves. And he tells us here that our lives are to the exact opposite of that, and that is, we are to be looking to please others. We are to be looking to have our focus on others. And Paul's entire life is a testimony to this. We naturally live our lives selfishly. We live our lives putting ourselves first most of the time. The only time that might change is something that I usually see almost universal, and that is in mothers. In mothers. Men still have a big thing to learn with regards to putting others first. Men seem to be the first ones to have their focus on themselves. Women seem to also be that way inclined until they have children. All of a sudden, something dramatically changes. And that is the focus ends up being completely sacrificial, where they set themselves to one side and their children always get the bigger portions of meal times. Fathers, favourite, crunchy chips, they get all that sort of stuff. So it's always the favour going to the child and they are always placed first. Paul's life was like this, he set his life aside. Paul spent the balance of his days living his life for the sake of others, spending his life and his days with consideration 
of the spiritual well-being and for others and not for himself. But in this passage, he doesn't give us himself as the prime example, but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ pleased not himself. The first point this morning is on one word, and that is the word ought. Ought. Ought, a moral absolute. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's an incredible word, ought. I don't know if you have ever thought of ought. You ought to think of the word ought because it's a really, really good word. It's a word that has a foundation and you ought to know that. It's very similar to the word should and you should know should. Because should also is similar to ought in that you should understand where it comes from. It has also a foundation. And you should know. Should and ought are based on an absolute. They're based on a foundation that only has to rise to the surface to ask you the question, well, why should? Why ought? There has to be reason for the ought and then reason for the should. It's one of the things that we need to be understanding because to say a person ought to do something presupposes a moral authority. It presupposes a moral authority. It's a basis that has to be the foundation of the word ought from which it stems. Which is why the question, why ought I do such and so, will come up. The reason is searched for that gives a foundation for the word ought. The word ought originates from the English word owe. The English word owe. And when you owe something, the concept is you ought to pay it. When you owe a debt, you ought to pay the debt. The meaning is absolute and it has its authority there. But the world now lives in a completely different world. We live in a world filled with self-contradiction. We live in a world that has lost its moral bearings. It no longer has a moral absolute. So when it comes to the question, well, there really isn't an answer to that other than what your own personal presuppositions or feelings subjective, relativistic ideas are. The world has lost it. It's given up absolutes. An absolute moral standard that has its foundation, that can have its foundation only in an absolute moral authority. But the what, uh, but, but this disappears now. This disappears in a civilization that has given up God. You see, when a civilization gives up God, it gives up the absolute authority from which morality actually stems from. Now, when you reject God, you reject the absolute moral authority. So when it comes to the question, why ought I? Well, there really isn't an answer. Why ought I? Why ought I do this and that? There isn't an answer. The problem is that when civilization gives up God, they also give up the very foundation of morality and everything becomes relative. So there you go. I just gave you... You might not pick it up. You pick it up. I just gave you a self-contradiction. Everything is relative. Everything is relative. If everything is relative, then relativity itself is part of everything, so relativity itself is relative. Everything is relative is a self-contradiction. It cancels itself out. 
Sorry to wake you up so early this morning. It's one of those things that actually come up. Let me, let me, let me just train you in this, and you've heard me say this before. It's the same thing that happens when a person says there is no such thing as right or wrong. The next question you have to ask them is, is that right? Because if that's right, it's wrong. It's exactly the same thing. They say there are no absolutes. Really, do you believe that absolutely? You just made an absolute statement that there are no absolutes. It's self-contradiction. It cancels itself out. Civilization can't live that way. It can't work that way. It has no basis in that. A relativistic, subjective society can never give you an ought. It can never give you an ought. They can have no absolute reason for saying you ought to do this or that if they hold to no objective moral truths. And when this is taught in schools, it's a matter of time before the entire civilization collapses. And we're seeing that before our very eyes today. In their book, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, Doctors Francis Beckwith and Greg Kokel recall the LA riots of 1992 saying, as buildings burned, we watched with horror. Shops were plundered, not by hooded looters, but by families made up of mum, dad, and the kids. Moral mutants on the shopping spree of their lives, giggling and laughing with impunity while stuffing their spoils into shopping carts and oversized trash bags. We shouldn't have been surprised. During the LA riots, these families did exactly what they had been taught. Nobody wanted to impose their morality on anyone else, so they learned that values are relative, and that morality is a matter of personal preference. Make your own rules, define your own reality, seek your own truth. In the spring of 1992, thousands of people did just what we told them to do, and civilization burned. It's an incredible thing when you think about it, you know. You think about all these ideas and we think about some of these words, these phrases like the word ought and we, we realise inherently that there has to be reason for the word ought. There has to be a foundation for it. There has to be something that's there. But this is exactly true. What happens with regards to civilization is that it falls apart completely. As I mentioned, we reject moral absolutes. We reject the absolute authority that gives foundation to the words ought and should. And then we wonder how the world has turned upside down. We lie, but despise being lied to. We steal, but we think that it's unjust for people to steal from us. We swear and we take offence at a vulgar bumper sticker. We think that there is no right or wrong, but the first thing to complain about is not getting the correct change at a store. It's an incredible thing. We want to do what we want to do and justify what we want to do, but then we take offence when somebody does what we don't want to do to us, done to us. We complain about that because there ought, that ought not to happen. And we're the first ones to undertake those things. C.S. Lewis perfectly describes the hypocritical position the world finds itself in in his book, The Abolition of Man. He says, we laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. (laughs) Very true. Very true. 
No, beloved, the word ought is not an option. It's an absolute. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is an absolute, beloved. This isn't an option. It's an absolute. It has its foundation in God and in the Scriptures. Our obligation to support the weak, second point this morning. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't forget me, Cobber. It was known as Australia's blackest night. The 19th of July, 1916, of a Victorian farmer by the name of Sergeant Simon Fraser would be caught up in what is, to this date, the worst 24 hours in Australian military history, the Battle of Fromelles in France in World War I. It was the first major battle fought by the Aussie troops on the Western Front, and it was a disaster. Over 5,500 Australian casualties in one night. More than the Boer War, the Korean War and the Vietnam Wars combined. That night, the sergeant can hear a call on the German side of no man's land. That's, the, that's that point between two fronts where no one dares enter in. That's the point between the firing line of two, of two fronts. It was a call for help from a fallen soldier. Sergeant Fraser wrote in his letter home saying, I remember we could hear someone over against the German entanglements calling for a stretcher bearer. Sergeant Fraser went out and found a large wounded man. He was over 90 kilos in weight. He couldn't carry him, but he managed to get him into a trench and he called for help. But this was not where he heard the voice. About 30 yards away, he heard the man sing out, Don't forget me, Cobber. The original statue is still located in Fromelles, France, but a replica of it can be seen in Birdwood Avenue, the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne. You've got a photograph of it in your newsletters. It's a statue of a soldier in his late 30s, carrying across his shoulders an unnamed wounded man. The soldier was the Victorian farmer, Simon Fraser, 39 years of age who selflessly returned to the most dangerous front of any war to retrieve a dying man and that area between the two enemies known as no man's land. Sergeant Fraser, unfortunately, would not return to farming in Victoria. He was killed the following year at the Second Battle of Bullcourt in May 12, 1917, aged 40 years, and his body was never found. We then, that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The ought is not an option in this passage of the Bible. It was not an option for Simon Fraser. It was and is an obligation. It is absolute. There will always be those that are weaker than you are. And there will always be those that are stronger than you are. But strength of faith differs from physical strength. Fraser couldn't physically bear the burden of one soldier while he could bear the other. But to him, it was never a question of ability. It was a question of will. It was a question of the will. 
Strength of faith can be seen in the most physically frail of people and it is that strength that is able to bear the infirmities of the weak, that is, those who are weak in faith. Paul spent the entire previous chapter writing of those who are weak in faith and dealing with the arrogance of those who are strong in faith. Um, the strong are to care for the weak, not to despise them as the manner of some were, not to disregard them, not to think, oh, they're so weak in faith and just, and just disregard it completely. Imagine for a moment that Sergeant Fraser would do the same thing, that in his strength he despised the desperate call of a fallen soldier. Imagine him thinking that if the man wanted to live, he should just crawl out on his own. There are those Christians who are indeed weak in their faith. And there are times we are going to need to go out and to look for them, to lift them up, to bear them across our shoulders and to carry them to safety. This is our obligation to support the weak. It's something that we ought to do. And don't think that this only applies to those that have been long-term lacking in their faith, this, this weakness of faith. This weakness of faith can come across the strongest of us. There's times within our lives that we can find ourselves weak in our faith. There's times in our lives when we're struggling with a, with a personal issue that finds us fallen flat on our face. There's times where you can be looking at those who seem to have an unshakable faith and they're as fragile as a brandy snap biscuit. And these are the times when your ears need to be tuned to the call. Don't, don't forget me, Cobber. You, know, you need to be tuned to that call. Don't forget me. Listen for those who are weak in their faith and, and bear them. Bear them up. Bear them up in their infirmities. Paul, referring to himself in the Corinthians, wrote, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? Paul suffers just as others do at times, both in faith and in offence. But it takes a diligent ear to listen for the singing out of Don't Forget Me. Don't Forget Me, Cobber. Especially from those who are in reputation that are strong in their faith. You see, even in war, um, the most able and the toughest soldiers of all can get caught in a crossfire. Uh, even, even in war... It's not necessarily that they are weakened because there is a lack of exercise on their part or a lack of training in their part. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're just caught off guard and a a good man and a good woman can just as easily fall. As Christians, none of us are immune from going through hardships. There's going to be times that our faith fails us. Times that our faith fails us. There's going to be times when you're going to be crying out to the Lord and you just don't sense his presence. There's going to be times when you're going to be crying out to God and you just feel like he's not answering. And we see that in the Psalms. We see that with the psalmist. How long will they hide thy face from me? Forever? You know? How long will I be suffering in this way? Forever? How long will you not, will you not recover me? Forever? And we see that with the psalmist. And it's just those times that we need those who are strong to bear the infirmities of those who are weak. And that's something that they ought to do. I don't know what kind of farmer Simon Fraser was. I don't know if it was livestock or grain. But what I do know is that he had an ear and sense tuned to the cries of help 
and he believed that he were, it was his obligation that he ought to help. No doubt there were some other soldiers in the camp, but only Fraser is immortalised for future generations as unique among all his other comrades in arms. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier, writes Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3-4. Soldiers don't just fight. Soldiers don't just fight. Sometimes they rescue. Sometimes they rescue. And there are times that they bear the infirmities of the weak. There are times each one of us are going to be strong and it will often come at times when others of us are weak. Don't forget us. Don't forget us, brother or sister. Don't forget us. Don't leave us behind enemy lines, especially when we're in pain or when we're in trial because it's going to be just at those times that we're going to need you who are strong to bear the burden of us who are weak. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, writes Paul to the Galatians in Galatians 6.2. You see, this is something that we are to do. We are to do this one for another. Every one of us are going to be going through some difficult times within our lives. Every one of us, we might be frail in our faith for one particular point over here, and yet the Lord desires more than anything else that we would be strengthened and we need to be lifted up. And, and, and who, who's going to do it for us? If we find ourselves struggling with our relationship with the Lord, we need, we need that kind word. We need a brother or a sister. We need that text message with a passage in the Scripture just at the right time. Just at the right time. Maria confessed to you something that happened to her and she remembers it to this day. You know, Just those handful of times when that message came through just at the right time when the telephone call was made just at the right time when a note was left in a pillow just at the right time because that's what we needed be sensitive to the holy spirit be sensitive to the lord because he uses you he uses you to be able to touch the heart of someone just at the right time what a wonderful blessing it is imagine for all eternity you're going to remember that one person that touched you just at the right time. And imagine that you're that person. Beloved, we have to be specifically and specially tuned to hearing the word of the Lord and to hearing those cries for help. But it's not going to happen when all we do is please ourselves. Our duty to surrender our wills, this third point this morning, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. All of this assumes that we are willing to surrender our wills and not to please ourselves. It's not only that we ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, but in order to do so, we also ought not to have as our first priority to please ourselves. This absolute command is not unique to this passage it's found elsewhere in scripture there seems to be this natural following on of the golden rule you've heard of the golden rule we all know the golden rule even the world knows what the golden rule is they don't follow it but they know what it is 
They want it applied to themselves, but they won't apply it to others. But they know what it is, is especially because they want it applied to themselves, even though they don't apply it to others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a rendering of the exact words that Jesus actually spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. Turn there with me. Let's have a look at it firsthand. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The last chapter of that Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5. If you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll find that from chapters 5 to chapter 7, it's pretty much all red. Chapter 7 and verse 12. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And, and just, just, just in case that this is a simple task, I want you to note uh, what it says in the very next verse and how it concludes this paragraph. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. The idea is not evidently followed by many. Uh, and yet it's not an arbitrary command. This is an ought. This is an ought it's something we ought to do. This is a moral absolute and should be followed by all people. We ought in every way to do to others what we would have them do to us. It takes the focus off us and puts it immediately on others. This is that golden rule. Imagine for a moment, just imagine, just, just, just try and imagine for a second that everybody in the world actually followed this rule, just this rule. Just this rule. I'm telling you right now, locksmiths would go out of business. Locksmiths would be the first to go out of business. Why? Because what do you need a lock for? Why do we need locks? Why do we need keys? Stop people entering in when they shouldn't. Don't we? The only reason we need a locksmith is because we have people who would take that which is, doesn't belong to them, who would enter in when they shouldn't. They're not doing to you what they would have them do to themselves. Just imagine the sort of world that we would have. It's an incredible world when you think about it. I would think it would be almost opposite to the world that we're living in. When we first moved into our house that we're in at the moment, which we've been there nearly 20 years, um, the owners of that house confessed to us that they'd been there 17 years, they built the house, they never locked the front door. Never had the front door unlocked. Unlo- uh, Always left it you know, easy enough to, to access and to open. And guys, that was only 20 years ago. Today you wouldn't even dare think about doing something like that. So obviously it's all moving in one particular direction. First thing um, that would go would be that which Paul states in Romans 15 is our first thought would not be to please ourselves. Our thoughts would be on others and we would do this first because we would also desire their thoughts to be on us. 
Let's confirm this doctrine. Let's get it nailed down. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. And I'm only going to say in 1 Corinthians. We're going to go a little bit to and fro. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. Simple verse, one single verse there. He says... Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Turn forward to chapter 13, verse 5, or verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4, for the sake of context. We know the chapter. It's what's known as the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Turn back to chapter 10. Have a look at verse 33. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33. Even as I please... All men in all things, seeking not mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now we're beginning to see a reasoning behind this selflessness. We're beginning to see a, a reason, a, a, a goal for this selflessness. We see it in Paul. What's the goal? That some may be saved. That some may be saved. Our focus to focus on other individuals, our consideration to have our focus tuned and our minds tuned towards other individuals is that they might be saved. Simon Fraser's main focus when he walked into no man's land was that he might save some. Now understand where he went. He went into a place that any moment a bullet could strike him dead. He put his own life at risk in order to save some. The focus of selflessness is that we might save some. And all the more important in this life. Turn back to chapter 9. No, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul writes, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, not uh, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. During some counselling this week, I asked a question. And the question that I asked was, of all things that you can do in your life that will matter the most to others, what would it be? What would it be? The most important thing that you can do in your life to make a difference to somebody else, what would it be? And almost as quick as I asked the question, the reply came back, to share the gospel, to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. 
If you want to know what your calling in life is and you want to yourself to be particularly set aside for a particular work, whatever ever that work is, each one of you being incredibly unique individuals, each one of you having a very, very particular purpose in Christ. You were created, you know, you were created for a purpose. You were created for a reason. You have purpose within your life because you were created for a purpose. Whatever your unique attributes are, whatever your unique gift is, it surrounds what Jesus came and died for. It surrounds the gospel. Whatever it is, it has something to do with perpetuating the gospel of Christ that you might save some. But in order to do that, you have to have the focus off yourself and you have to put it on others. This is the epitome of a selfless act and that is to share the gospel of Christ. And who is our example? Our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our example. This is the greatest ought of all is to share the gospel. Yeah, sure, sure. We, we, we need to feed people. We need to be able to look after them, care for them. Um, we need to care for their needs. Absolutely. We need to help their infirmities. We need to, we need to be there for their own personal, physically well-being. Um, if they are unclothed, we need to give them clothes. If they're unsheltered, we need to shelter them. Um, we need to give them water to quench their thirst, food to feed their needs. But above all, but above all, if you have a thought for their temporal care, never let it escape you that you ought to care for their eternal well-being as a priority. Tragically, this one simple command of Christ is the one single effort that churches seem to have long forgotten today. The Salvation Army, you know who they are? They began as a christ centered gospel preaching ministry that saved the souls of multitudes it was an army of people who had the message of salvation just as the title of it states they are they are the salvation army the focus was the gospel and it's just as you would expect from an evangelist william booth was the founder of the salvation army And I want you to consider some quotes from this famous evangelist. Some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. My passion is for souls. If I thought I could win one more soul to the Lord by walking on my head and playing the tambourine with my toes, I'd learn how. If you want to change the future then you are going to have to trouble the present. I like that one. Most Christians would like to send their recruits to Bible college for five years. I would like to send them to hell for five minutes. That would do more than anything else to prepare them for a lifetime of compassionate ministry. That's an important point. I'm not waiting for a move of God. I am a move of God. The greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. That's surrender to the gospel. I like this last one here. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. 
while there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. He fights for the gospel. He's a soldier of Christ. He fights for the gospel. His ears are tuned. They're tuned. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. His ears are tuned. He's listening for it. His focus isn't on himself. It's not in his own pleasures. It's on the hearts and the lives of others. How many people today will not suffer the way they suffer if they just had somebody else that would take their focus off themselves and put it on them? But we, we, we think for a second that healthcare workers employed by the government actually care. Some do, no doubt. But where should the care be coming from? The people that love them the most is where it should be coming from. What we had in men like William Booth were those whose only pleasure was not for themselves and whose ears were fitly tuned to hear the cries of dying men and dying women and dying children saying, don't forget me. How many do we forget as we walk right by them today? But Christ pleased not himself. The last point this morning. Back in our passage in Romans 15, 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Why do we do this? We do this because Jesus set our example. Of all the people in the world, there is none that could have ever been seen more perfectly than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none to have ever been more comfortable in his state. There is no person on earth that would have ever been more contented in his present state before he created man Then the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Ghost, perfect communion, perfect rest, perfect joy, perfect happiness. He didn't need to make man in his image, you know. Didn't need to do it. You don't add anything to him. Did you know that? You add nothing to him. Your righteousness don't add anything to Christ, to the Lord. Your sin doesn't take away anything from the Lord. He's perfectly content in who he is. There was no need to make man in his image. There was no need to see him rebel against his maker. There was no need to see the trouble and the violence in man. There was no need to begin again with a new set of people. There was no need for him to choose a nation to bless. There was no need for him to see them also rebel against him. There was no need to attempt again and again to restore them to himself. There was no need to send his only begotten son into the world to demonstrate the love of God there was no need for any of this he didn't need to do any of it there was no need that the son should be killed for the very ones he came to save there was no need for Christ to rise and to trouble himself to save the world from the punishment of the sin that they love there was no need to watch the world fall again into disarray and apostasy and there would be no need to deal the final death blow to the wicked and give the world one last chance of a thousand years of blessing. No need. Think of everything the Lord has done. And you know what? He had no need to do any of that. 
And there would be no need to begin again after that final world rebellion at the end of that thousand years with a new heaven and a new earth where perfect righteousness and joy remains forever. You see, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had all that they needed for all eternity past to continue to eternity future without needing to put up with you and I. For Christ pleased not himself. Do you get that? He didn't please himself. He wasn't doing what he did to please himself. The question of why he elected to do so is not the subject, however, of this sermon. And it's certainly a valid one. But Paul shows to us a prime example of one who had no additional benefit for creating man, but only trouble to date. And yet he pleased not himself, but did all he did for our future hope. John six thirty seven to 38, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In this we see with complete clarity that the will of the Father was for the salvation of the lost, for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. That's why he came. In John 4.34, when Jesus was speaking of his gospel to the woman at the well, you remember John 4? He's speaking to her at the well and the disciples came to him and they came to give him bread to eat some food because they went into the town to get some food and he, they see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman at the well and they offered him the food. And Jesus said, all, and Jesus said unto them, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The will of Christ was to do the will of the Father. That was his will. That was his only will. Not to do his own will. His food, the very product that sustains Jesus, was to do the Father's will. It's as if he heard our cry down through the ages. It's as if he heard our cry down through the ages. Don't forget me. It's as if Jesus' mind was tuned to the things of people who needed him desperately, to billions of people over the next 2,000 years, that he might hear their cry, don't, don't forget me, don't forget me. You might see him turn, you, you might see him look at you, you might see him reach down and you might see him bear you up and carry you across his shoulders. You might see him do that because not even Christ pleased himself. Let's turn to how that was in reality. Turn back again to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 36, begin our text. And listen to Jesus, listen to Jesus' own heart at this time. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane here, just before his passion. Verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto the place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. 
Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times. Three times the Lord Jesus went before the Father to petition him to take away this cup that he would drink. What cup? What cup? What was the severity of the trial that Jesus was going to be going through? I mean, it was severe. It was certainly severe. Luke records in in chapter 22, verse 44, that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Sergeant Simon Fraser, he was taking a risk when he headed back into no man's land and the risk was, was that he might lose his life in the process. There was a risk that he'd be shot. But Jesus, there wasn't a risk that he was concerned about. Jesus knew what would befall him. It, it was a cup that he would drink only because it was not his will but the Father's will. And this sweating of blood, this sweating of blood is not an anomaly. It's an anomaly because it's so rare, but it still happens today. It still happens today. Historically, it's a level of stress that is found by people who are particularly on death row. These people who are on death row, not all of them, but many of them endure such emotional stress that they sweat blood. They literally sweat blood. It's a condition called hematidrosis. And this is, where, this is where the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture. And it's usually caused by extreme physical or emotional stress. Jesus, Jesus knew what he was going to endure. Three times he asked the Father to remove the cup, but he knew he ought to do the Father's will, for Christ pleased not himself. It wasn't the mockings, though. I don't believe it was the mockings that made him sweat blood, the cruel mockings, the, 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 the demonically inspired mockings. He says that the, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. In other words, they did what they did to me because they hate God, the Father. This is the same with Christians today. They'll do what they do to you, not because they hate you, but because they hate Christ. You will be persecuted not because of who you are, but because of who you love and who you follow and who you are associated with and identify with. You identify with Christ. Jesus bore the reproach of those who hated his father, but it was demonically inspired. But that wasn't, I don't believe that was all that caused him to sweat blood. It wasn't the spitting. It wasn't them pressing the crown of thorns into his scalp, nor was it them pulling the beard from his face. I don't think it was even that, yet he knew it would all come. He knew all that was going to happen. It wasn't the Roman scourge. 
you know, even, even Paul had, better, had greater rights than Jesus. Paul was stood to be scourged by the Romans. And as a Roman, he actually said, is it lawful for thee to, to scourge a Roman who is uncondemned? Jesus didn't even have that right. He was scourged by the Romans. But, it, but the thought that they would be tearing the flesh from his bones, I don't think that that was the only reason that he sweated blood. It might seem incredible to you, but I don't even think it was the crucifixion alone that caused him to sweat blood. The Romans were economical in this form of capital punishment and that demonstrated every part of the utility of the cross was, was used to create as much pain as the body can bear for as long as possible before the person would expire. The word expressing this most severest pain in the English language is the word excruciate, which is the Latin word of the cross. Thick nails are driven into the wrist, pierced the median nerve with severe pain and left a lot of the hand without feeling. I worked in my father's butcher shop when I was a boy and I remember how easily a a 200 kilogram animal can actually be hung up on a single hook if it was pierced in the right manner. The Romans knew this all too well. They were butchers. They understood exactly how to put a man on a cross that he wouldn't come down. They didn't need ropes. They added to this, he had to exhale the air from his lungs and he had to press down on his feet. He had a large nail that, that uh, was torn through the metacarsal bones in his feet. But, but this wasn't the only torture of the cross that caused his malady, that caused him to sweat blood there would be an episode that the Lord Jesus Christ would go through and it would be an episode that no man in history has ever experienced. It would be something that would occur to the Lord that can occur to no other man and it's never occurred before and it will never occur again and we cannot even begin to conceive of how difficult that was for the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the first time in all eternity... Jesus would feel forsaken of God. He would feel forsaken of God. That's never happened before. Never happened. It never happened before that Christ would feel separated from his Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never does Jesus speak in the first person to his Father, referring to him as my God, separating himself from the Father. But what God saw... Think about this. This, this, The reason why he came was to go on the cross. The reason he came was to save you and I, to go on that cross, to bear the punishment for our sins. That was the reason he came. It was the high point of his career. But God couldn't even look upon him. Because on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was sin-judged. He's sin-judged, our sin judged on that cross, and God can't look at that. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, writes Paul in Galatians 3.13, reflecting Deuteronomy 21.23. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. We close with this thought. There can never be a greater example of a selfless act than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you and for me, this is what he ought to have done. Don't forget me, Cobber. The cry rang out from hell. That was from El's bloody battlefield where 5,000 diggers fell. The soldier froze in his retreat then turned to face that voice and ran back to save his wounded mate. He knew he had no choice. That plea made so long ago has echoed down through time. Though they may pay the highest price in answer to that call, to lay down your life for a fellow man is the greatest gift of all. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ had done. He had done that for you and I. He laid down his life that we might have life. Our work and our role is not to continue our life to please ourselves, but to do and to continue the work. For greater love hath no man than this, the man lay down his life for his friends. How much do you think of others in your day-to-day life? Enough to give them a call? you think about them enough just to give them a call? And do, you, do you think of them enough just to send them a text message? Maybe just to front up at their door to lend them a hand. Um, you, you think of them enough maybe to bring them food or to cut the grass or just to be there, just to be there. In a time when people are going through so much anxiety, are you willing to just, just front up and just to be there, just to let them know that you're there? Are you, are you, are you, are you willing to breach a regulation because someone is suffering during this time. How much are you willing to think of others? Compare how often you have determined to please yourself first and then compare it to what you ought to do. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Please think about this this week. Think about it this month. Think about it this year. Think about this and think of how Jesus didn't forget you or leave you behind. He's coming again, you know. He's coming again. He, he hasn't forgotten us, but don't miss him. Maranatha, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, dear Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your work. I pray, dear Father, if there are any here who do not know Christ, that they would forsake their sin that they would reach out to the Father, that they would seek after Christ for their salvation. They may not know it, Lord, but they are dead as they walk. And I pray and ask, dear Father, you would give them eternal life. You would open their hearts and have them tuned to the truth of who you are and what you've done. And I pray for each one of us, dear Lord, that we would spend our time thinking about others and not ourselves, and that we might bless you for your work, and so fulfil the work of Christ. I praise you for this time and ask you, dear Lord, for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.